Thank you, Father Berenger, for the welcome. Today we're going to discuss the question of why it's not irrational to believe. The evidentialist objection is very common to the rationality of faith, the argument that rational beliefs require sufficient evidence and Christian beliefs don't have sufficient evidence to support them, and so Christian beliefs are not rational. Very, very common objection. Let's make our way into the discussion of that objection and how we can reply to it by considering a simpler question that's maybe less hostile. Why have faith? A graduate student who's a practicing Catholic recently came to me and asked me this question. We were having a conversation and she just said simply, why have faith? The question startled me. She was raising the question with goodwill and honest inquiry. There was no trace of hostility in her question and no opposition to faith as such. She is, after all, practicing Catholic. It was just a simple request for clarification and understanding. What startled me was that even though she was a graduate student, an intelligent woman in her mid-twenties, and a devout practicing Catholic, she had never become consciously aware of some very basic points that in previous generations of better catechesis would have been obvious to people. I told her that faith is a response to the Word of God. It is an acceptance of what God has revealed and spoken. She looked at me with a blank stare. What I was saying was obviously news to her. So I went on to say more. I began to ask her about her experience of going to Mass. What do we say at the end of the first and sometimes the second reading in each Mass? The lector says, the word of the Lord. And the people reply, thanks be to God. In the Eastern rites of the Church, the announcement they make is before the readings and it's different. What they say is, Wisdom, be attentive. The point that they make in the Eastern Rites is that what is coming to us as listeners of the scriptural reading is the wisdom of God himself. Whether one says the word of the Lord or wisdom, be attentive, these simple liturgical acts affirm that God is now present speaking to us, not in the sense of giving us a new revelation, but in the sense of making the revelation God delivered once and for all to the saints present and active for us to hear and acknowledge and to accept and live by as God's own word. She, this, young, this, undergrad, uh, this graduate student I was talking to, had never noticed any of this before or paid any attention. No one had ever explained any of this to her. The assertion that God is now present, speaking to us through the scripture, the tradition, and the preaching of the church was a completely new thought for her. It almost seemed too good to be true. So I reassured her 
The Second Vatican Council in the Catechism of the Catholic Church affirmed that Christ, quote, is now present in his word since it is he himself who speaks to us when the Holy Scriptures are read in the Church. End quote. In previous generations of Catholics, the claim that faith is a response to the Word of God or the revelation of God would not have been news. Catechetical forms of the act of faith memorized by generations of Catholic schoolchildren made it explicit. How would those acts of faith go? Something like this. O oh God, I believe all that Holy Mother Church teaches, for you have revealed it, and your word is true. So goes one such formula. Upon hearing all of this, the graduate student was delighted. Without going any step further, without demanding any proof of the presence of God speaking, either now or in the past, she just accepted it. God speaks, and faith believes what he says. And that is why we believe or have faith. Two things struck me in this conversation that I had with this graduate student. In asking the question, why have faith? She displayed in her own question and behavior a point that the esteemed church historian or historian of church doctrine, Yaroslav Pelikan, made about the fate of the gospel in the 19th century. Up until the 19th century, Pelikan explains, the church was continuously engaged in struggle with people who were aware that the church was claiming to possess a divine revelation and they claimed to accept that divine revelation. But what they objected to was some point or other of church teaching. But they did so in the name of that divine revelation. Starting with Arius and going up through the battle with the Jansenisms of the 18th century, the battle was with heresies. These battles were about various points within a common body of teaching that everyone accepted as the word of God. Was Jesus truly God and man? Does God offer sufficient grace for salvation to all people or only to a select few? The fights were over what God exactly revealed. But beginning with the rise of rationalisms, anti-metaphysical philosophies, and historical criti critical exegesis in the 17th century, a new question came to the fore. Has God revealed anything at all? Is it true that God has spoken anything to the human race? Prove it. Is there evidence to believe this? Can reason accept such a claim? According to Yaroslav Pelikan, by the 19th century, these forms of skepticism about the very fact of revelation had come to be the main issue the Church faced. The First Vatican Council thus defined several points about man's capacity to prove the existence of God by the light of reason and also the rational verifiability of the fact of divine revelation. Western consciousness was losing sight of the Word of God as an active presence 
and a communication from God that one could acknowledge by faith and build a life around. This loss of consciousness of the Word of God as the Word of God and not merely as the Word of human beings seems to be one of the principal characteristics of secularization. Our graduate student, the one I was talking with, was in a way a perfect example of Yaroslav Pelikan's point. Up until our conversation, she had been living without any explicit consciousness or awareness of God ever having spoken or revealed himself or making his word present now, even though she was practicing the Catholic faith. How did we get to this point? One of the most common objections that seems to be driving the loss of consciousness of the Word of God as present and speaking to us through the scriptures, the tradition, and the preaching of the church is a philosophical objection that's come to be called the evidentialist objection. Here's how the evidentialist objection goes. It's very simple, as are all very powerful philosophical arguments. Here's how it goes. Premise one. It is irrational to believe something without sufficient evidence. Premise two. The mysteries of faith lack sufficient evidence. By the mysteries of faith, we mean those things that Christians believe in that are beyond uh, philosophical demonstrability. So St. Thomas says that we can prove the existence of God. We can prove various attributes of God using reason. But certain things such as the Trinity, the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ, or the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, Eucharist, these cannot be proven philosophically, so we call them mysteries of faith. And what the objection says in the second premise is that the mysteries of faith lack sufficient evidence. Therefore, it is irrational to believe the mysteries of faith. Very common objection. It's found in philosophy classrooms and seminar rooms and on campuses all over the United States, all over, all over the world, really. What do we do? How do we respond to this? There are two ways to respond to the objection. One way is to deny the first premise, that it, it is irrational to believe without sufficient evidence. But that's a difficult way to go, since the premise is intuitively plausible and can be motivated by powerful examples. Would you want a doctor or a surgeon to operate on your brain without having sufficient evidence that you need it? Furthermore, the objection seems also to be in Scripture, in a way. In various places, the Scriptures warn us against being quick to believe or credulous. In Aquinas' Latin translation of Scripture, the book of Sirach, chapter 19, verse 4, says, He who is quick to believe is light of heart. That is, he's foolish in some way. Well, how come all Christians aren't foolish? Aren't we quick to believe the things that are told to us about Christ being raised from the dead, for example? Isn't that foolish, then? So it's hard to deny the first premise that it's wrong or irrational to believe something without sufficient evidence. 
Let's consider another way to reply to the objection. Another way to reply is to deny the premise that the mysteries of faith lack sufficient evidence. The task here is to provide sufficient evidence. And down through the years of Christian history, apologists have spent no small time and effort summarizing and describing a vast and diverse web of evidences in support of the claim that the mysteries of faith are in fact divinely revealed. We can give evidence that God has spoken these things to us. What are some of these evidences? The many miracles down through history, the many healings. And we can go to shrines, Lourdes, Our Lady of Czestochowicz, and, and see the crutches and the wheelchairs of so many people healed, left behind, or all the causes of all the saints and all the healings that have taken place through all of those. It's a vast stream of miracles and healings. But that's just the beginning. There are also the martyrs, the saints, the, the conversion of St. Paul, the growth of the church, the endurance of the church through all kinds of circumstances, the various phenomena of the mystical life, such as levitation, bilocation. Padre Pio by himself just seems to be a, a gigantic piece of evidence that the gospel has been divinely revealed. As well as ordinary but distinctive experience of supernatural peace and joy in the Christian heart, the rational intelligibility of the faith. St. Thomas Aquinas was a genius, and he could look at the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he could find in it deep rational intelligibility, and he could address so many questions that could be raised about it. That, too, is a sign that it's truly a wisdom from above. But even more, its effects are transforming in people and in societies for the better. All of these are but a few signs indicating the divine origin of the faith. And it's only a summary of them. There's no small number of books laying out all of these evidences and signs in great detail. But this sort of task lay, uh, faces several problems. First of all, it needs to be clarified that one does not ha ever have direct evidence of the truth of the mysteries of faith, but only indirect evidence. We can never prove that God is triune. It's a mystery of faith. We can never prove absolutely that God became man in Jesus Christ. We can never prove that Jesus Christ is truly present, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist. We can only give indirect evidence that God has revealed these things. And we have reasons to believe that it really is God who has given us these teachings, these truths, who's opened them up for us. And when we start to give evidences, though, we can start to give the impression that we think we can prove these things directly, and we cannot. That's one difficulty. But second of all, another difficulty is that it is questionable what amount of evidence counts as sufficient. I mean, we can always, one can always keep ratcheting up the standards. Say, give me more evidence. I need more evidence. I need more. I need more. I need more. 
When does it end? When is enough enough? And so it's questionable whether sufficient evidence can ever actually be provided. No matter how many books one produces detailing evidences or signs of divine revelation. Third, a third difficulty in laying out signs is that even if a vast and overwhelming evidence could be provided, we could fall into another trap of thinking or claiming that people do believe or should believe because of all these evidences that God has revealed the mysteries of faith. But this would be a misunderstanding of what faith is. In order to explain this, we need to draw a couple of distinctions. The first distinction is common in epistemology, the study of knowledge. We can distinguish between basic beliefs and beliefs that are held on the basis of evidence. The former, basic beliefs, are sometimes called, in the language, certainly in the language of St. Thomas, first principles. The latter are sometimes called conclusions. So if we, the classic example is geometry. In, you, in the geometry of Euclid, you have the first principles that are not proven. Then you have all the theorems that follow from those principles. That's an important distinction we need, because we can't prove everything. Some things have to be first principles, and from those first principles, we go on to prove other things. The evidentialist objector, objector assumes that Christian belief in the mysteries of faith is an instance of the latter, that is, of believing things as conclusions of an inference based on evidences of the fact of revelation. But St. Thomas is very clear. He says, quote, Faith does not believe on account of signs, but on account of first truth, end quote. By first truth, he means God revealing these things to us. He means that faith does not result from an inference from evidences of revelation. Christian beliefs, at least beliefs in the articles of the creed or of the mysteries of faith, are basic beliefs or first principles. They're not held on the basis of propositional evidence. Another distinction that we need is between a natural process of forming opinions or beliefs and a supernatural process of forming belief in the mysteries of faith. When we think about natural processes, well, you and I go throughout the day every day. We catching sight of various things and drawing conclusions from them. I mean, we see someone else who's sniffling and sneezing and coughing or has a headache, and we see these evidences and we conclude, oh, the person has a cold or a flu or something. That would be a natural process of forming an opinion or a judgment. Is faith one of these natural processes or is it another kind of process altogether that's not strictly natural but is beyond what we are capable of doing by human nature? It turns out that if Christian beliefs are actually true, if we accept the gospel of Jesus Christ and and probe and see what the gospel says about faith, faith is a gift. It's a special, supernatural gift. And it doesn't come to us as not formed by the same kind of natural process of cognition that we use in our daily affairs. How do we understand this gift? 
The most complete account of faith presents it as a gift and also explains how a person receives this gift in a reasonable way. So following St. Thomas Aquinas, my account goes as follows. When God gives someone the gift of faith, he gives the person everything that he or she needs to believe without violating our nature as rational, and even to fulfill our rational nature. When God gives someone the gift of faith, he gives the person three things, that, or you could say three parts of the gift, or three things that go with it. First of all, God gives what to believe. And this comes through testimony, or preaching, or the teaching of the church. So we hear Jesus is Lord. He's risen from the dead. God is triune. Jesus is truly present, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist. We need to hear this from without. That's what we believe. What we also hear is that it is God who has spoken these things or revealed them to us. The second thing God gives when he gives a person the gift of faith, is an inclination of the will to believe all that is said or what is put forth in preaching and teaching. And this inclination of the will, we can think of it as a kind of secret tendency within a a movement, an inclination, a, a, a tendency of the heart to say yes to these things, to affirm them, to say, yes, this is the truth. That inclination is there. Sometimes St. Thomas calls it the instinct of faith, or he calls it the instinct of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the living God enters into the person who's listening and moves the person, inclines the person to acknowledge and accept that what is being said is God's own word given to us. And the third thing that God gives when he gives the gift of faith is he gives evidences or signs to corroborate the claim that what is being heard really is God's own word. It's God's word and not just the word of human beings or one more story on the streets. God gives such signs. St. Thomas is very clear about that. All the kinds of signs we listed above, miracles and martyrs and the conversion of St. Paul and the sign of the church and her longevity down through history. Faith comes from hearing, St. Paul says, and what is heard is an announcement, a testimony or a preaching. What is announced or proclaimed can run anywhere from a simple assertion, Jesus is Lord. Or it can go all the way towards being an elaborate presentation of the central mysteries. God, providence, the fall, the incarnation, the death and resurrection of Jesus, the sending of the Spirit at Pentecost, the Church, the sacraments, baptism, and the Eucharist. Either before or during or after this is going on, this teaching and preaching, And from the person's point of view, this hearing, God stirs within the heart of the listener a mysterious inclination. 
It is an inclination of the will to believe. This inclination of the will can, either immediately or eventually, down the road, so affect the person that he or she sees, and sees without any inference, I should believe this. When the person forms this judgment in the context of practical action, I mean, when we're talking about someone who's actually asking himself or herself the question, should I believe this? The person forms in his or her conscience a judgment, believe. It's as if there's a voice, the voice of conscience within, which has been stirred by the Spirit, saying, believe this, or just believe it. In the technical language of St. Thomas, this immediate judgment, believe, is a form of connatural knowledge. It's a big word in St. Thomas's vocabulary. In ordinary parlance, we can say it is what the heart knows, or what love sees, or what the conscience bids the person to do. You could say it's the voice of conscience. We could also call it a profound moral and spiritual intuition. In some places, St. Thomas calls it the light of faith. Here's what he says about the light of faith. Quote, The light of faith makes us see what we believe. For just as by the habits of the other virtues man sees what is becoming to him in respect of that habit, so by the habit of faith the human mind is directed to assent to such things as are becoming to a right faith and not to assent to others. End quote. Here's another passage in which St. Thomas describes this light of faith. Quote, Unbelievers are in ignorance of the things that are of faith, for neither do they see or know them in themselves, nor do they know them to be credible. The faithful, on the other hand, know them, not as by demonstration, but by the light of faith, which makes them see that they ought to believe them." End quote. That's a marvelous passage. When St. Thomas says, this light of faith, this special inclination God puts in the heart, which has effects in the conscience, which is like a spiritual understanding or a spiritual judgment, I should believe this. It's a special light, the light of faith, that produces this judgment that I should believe these things that are spoken to me even without proof or demonstration. Even when people begin to experience this divine light leading them to believe, though, people are sometimes held back from yielding by the invisibility of what is proposed. And sometimes we can hold out for a long time. Think of the story of St. Augustine in his Confessions. He went years and years and years, sensing a draw in some kind towards the gospel, towards the, the church, towards faith, but he had all kinds of things that he was dealing with in his life and in his mind that were holding him back from believing. So God's grace was there and working, leading him towards the, that important moment when he could see he should believe. But it 
took a long time because he was holding out. By exploring our experience, though, the person can also find various corroborating signs, the signs we mentioned above, miracles, saints, the church. Indeed, the whole panoply of evidence is marshaled by Christian apologists down through the ages. <clears throat> Depending on the degree of the person's time, aptitude, and interest, he or she can explore experience at great length and depth and rationally elaborate those signs in the form of an argument that the testimony is true or that it's of divine origin. It's really God's word. This process can assuage fears of believing or it can reassure the person that it's possible to answer for one's belief. But this process of exploring experience for signs and elaborating them in an argumentative form does not cause the person to believe. For belief is a simple trust. It is non-inferential assent. It is instinctive with a spiritual instinct. It is childlike in its essence, even if it's surrounded by extensive critical reflection. So if the person believes because of the experience of signs, because of an argument from signs, then the, it is not faith. St. Thomas has a, another category for that. He calls it vehement opinion. You have a vehement opinion in religious matters. But that's not faith. Because faith is not an opinion. It's a simple trusting assent to God revealing it is not irrational to believe, says St. Thomas, because the believer has a double witness, testifying that what is believed is the word of God. The believer has, first and most importantly, an interior light or instinct or inspiration bidding him or her in conscience to believe. And as corroboration or reassurance, the believer has multiple signs or evidences confirming that what is accepted in faith as the Word of God really is the Word of God and not a myth, a legend, or a lie. This is a good opportunity for us to pause and consider some more specific objections that are raised sometimes to the faith. It's often said that faith is wishful thinking. It's a very common objection. After all, what is wishful thinking? Wishful thinking is believing something that you want to be true and without sufficient evidence for believing it. So what you're saying, St. Thomas, here's how the objector would go. Here's what you're saying. You want to believe that these things are true because of this special inclination. And that's why you believe them. St. Thomas would answer, if he was standing here, yes, we do believe because we want to. There's a movement of the will that moves us to assent to what we hear as God's own word, to believe it as such. But, St. Thomas would say, we don't believe it without sufficient evidence. Surrounding this 
interior movement of the heart or the conscience moving us to believe, we have many, many, many signs, evidences, or indications that corroborate and confirm what we believe by virtue of this inspiration or instinct of the Holy Spirit. So it's false to say that faith is the same as wishful thinking. There's another response we can give to the wishful thinking objection, though, one that's not in St. Thomas. And the response goes something like this. There are many things that the Church teaches, or at least one thing I can think of, that I don't wish were true. I don't wish that there is a place called hell and that souls will go there for all eternity and be, you know, endure eternal punishment and torment. I wish that weren't true, but I believe that it is true because it's been revealed by God. So faith is not the same as wishful thinking because I believe things that I don't wish to be true, at least some of them. Furthermore, the wishful thinking objection tends to smack of a kind of armchair psychology, you know, like, like diagnoses or labels that we put on each other uh, in an armchair situation without adequate clinical testing. Um, and if you're going to play that game, we can also come back and say, well, we can do, I mean, Christians can do armchair psychology too, and we can come back against people who don't believe and say, you don't believe you're living in denial, basically. Basic agnosticism, atheism is a radical form of denial um, because the faith calls for you to detach from certain goods that you consider essential to your personal happiness. So you would rather deny the existence of God or deny the fact of divine revelation rather than give up certain, uh, certain goods that you enjoy contrary to the teachings of God. So, basically, agnosticism or atheism is one gigantic form of denial. It can go even more than that or further than that, though. Psychologists have done studies on atheists down through history and have shown that it's a very common pattern among atheists that there's an absent father figure in their lives. And when you look at the phenomenon of absent fatherhood or deficient fatherhood in their lives, it's a pattern that runs through atheism and we're able to tell a kind of psychological tale about the origins of atheism in those psychological roots. So if you want to start using psychology to uh, explain why there are psych you know, deficiencies in, in atheists or in believers, that cuts both ways. So that's a common objection, the wishful thinking objection, and it doesn't go very far. There's another common objection that's raised, which is that Christians believe for all sorts of reasons, but not because of truth indicators. Don't people believe because they want to go to heaven? Don't they believe because they want paradise? Don't they believe because they think that they'll, their lives will be blessed? Or don't they believe because they're trying to avoid hell? None of those things have anything to do with believing the truth for truth's sake. However, in response to that objection, St. Thomas is clear, the object of faith is precisely truth, first truth. We believe in God's truth, and we believe that it's God's truth, and we believe it because it's the truth, the truth that has come to us through the preaching of the gospel. 
And although we do not, do not believe because of the evidences, signs, or truth indicators that are given to us, still those truth indicators are there. We can find them and elaborate them to, at great length when necessary. So it's not the case that belief or faith is some irresponsible kind of belief that is a matter of just giving into a belief for some reason other than truth or for interests other than truth interests. Those are two common objections to the rationality of faith in addition to the evidentialist objection. And I've given you some replies based upon St. Thomas's understanding of the faith and its nature. If you want to understand, I think, with an image, how St. Thomas would reply to the evidentialist objection, you may want to recall a scene in The Lord of the Rings. There's that one scene where they're carrying the ring on the way in the Fellowship of the Ring. They're carrying the ring to uh, dispose of it. And basically one of the characters says to Frodo, just give me the ring. Let me carry it. It's too heavy for you. I will do it. And Frodo's on his back. He's, he's backing up. He's on his knees trying to get further away. And he says something. Tolkien puts perfect words into his mouth. He says, what you say to me sounds like wisdom, but for something in my heart that tells me otherwise. And that's the way it is with the evidentialist objection. What you are saying, evidentialist objector, sounds like wisdom, but for something in our hearts, and many, 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 many other corroborating evidences that tell us otherwise. On this feast day of St. Thomas, let us close with a word from St. Thomas's commentary on the divine names of Pseudo-Dionysius. There, St. Thomas gives the following description of the person who has faith. Here's what St. Thomas says. Quote, He who is united to the truth by faith knows well how good it is for him to be united to the truth in this way. Even though many reprehend him as, as having gone out of his senses and of being a fool and a madman, for truly, it is hidden from those reprehending him for his errors that he has suffered an ecstasy of truth, as if placed beyond all sense knowledge and conjoined to the supernatural truth. The believer knows himself to be no fool, as they say, but to be liberated by the pure and unchangeable truth and to be withdrawn from the unstable and changing current of error. Thank you very much.